Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Before we get to our conversation about Brian Zahn's new book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which is it's a great book. It really is. It's a good one. Um, let me tell you about Podbean, our sponsor for today. Podbean Podcast Hosting offers a simple, affordable way for churches and religious organizations or leaders to share their message. With the Podbean app sermons or any other teachings, can be recorded and published directly from your phone. So if you've got a church, if you've got an organization, if you've got a group, uh, a teaching that you want to share, what better way than to do that than by having a podcast? And what better people to help you get a podcast going than the people who've helped me so much, our friends at Podbean. So if you want to go get a podcast started, go to podbean.com backslash newsworthy for more information now. On to Brian Zond. Here we go. All right, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have returning for the bunch of time. I don't know what it is. Our friend from Missouri, BZ. Missouri. You're not a Missouri. You're not a Missouri guy. I always get this wrong. I'm not that redneck. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Sorry, Mike Cope. You are that redneck. But I, I guess. And you know what? I always hear people say, "I read your books, and then I started listening to you." You don't sound anything like what that sound like. And I don't think that's a compliment, I think. No, I don't think that's a compliment at all. Uh, what do you think there's, you're supposed to sound like? I don't know, but not like a Missouri hick. <laughs> <laughs> that warms my heart. My good friend Mike Cope, who's from Missouri, um, I'm sure he'll have great things to say about that statement. Um, can we jump in? to a tweet that you posted the other day that might be the best tweet. It, my, 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 yeah. It's the best tweet you've ever done. It's, it, it might be the best tweet in the world, in the history of the Twitter, the best one ever. Now, let me set the backstory for this. My wife loves the Olive Garden, and she takes my three daughters to the Olive Garden. They like it. If I never ate at the Olive Garden again in my life, I would be happy. I only go because of love and fidelity to my wife. So I've been going to this terrible restaurant that claims to be Italian for many years with a great deal of that animosity building up in my soul. And so when I see this tweet that takes down not only the Olive Garden, but penal substitutionary atonement, it's like doves flew out of my soul. Thank you. I'm just saying thank you. Well, you are welcome. Uh, yeah, it was. I wasn't so much aiming at Olive Garden, but you know, it came up. You know how it came up. <laughs> okay. The, the backstory was Tony Jones tweeted something about how he was at the Olive Garden with um, John, Piper, John Piper, and Piper said at the Olive Garden, "Penal substitutionary atonement is the gospel." And then you responded, "The Olive Garden is to Italian food what PSA is to the gospel." Is that right? Something yeah. like that? Yeah, I, I think that's it. Yeah. It just presented itself. It was there. It was a hanging curveball. I had to swing. Yeah. Now, my wife doesn't like it when I do things like that. Why not? What did she say to you about that? Well, I have two Holy Spirits. I have, you know, the Holy Spirit and my wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, trying to me to be nicer on Twitter. So. <laughs> did, did she give you a, a, a head shake? BZ, that's not right. Did she well, talk to you about she, it? He is there to suppress my snark. Mm-hmm. And my, my snark probably needs to be at least under rain somewhere. Some. A little bit. A little bit's good. You just don't want it to get too much. Yeah. 
You know, my wife does the same thing with me. She tries to, to, to taper down the, the, the snark. Um, yeah, I sent an email that I told her about afterwards and it was not a good decision because I felt like the email had the right balance of snark and humor. She didn't agree with that assessment. So it seems that your wife and my wife have a similar job description. Right, I think so. Yeah, that's about and, right. And side note, your wife had a book that just came out, right? A while Just uh, Monday, yeah. You know, we, we uh, took our first sabbatical in 35 years. I think we were overdue. And we uh, walked the Camino de Santiago, 500 miles from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, to Santiago de Compostela, Spain. Perry kept a journal, and she came back and turned it into a 200-page memoir. Wow. Uh, um, yeah, I, I love it. I especially like the parts about her lovable sidekick. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Okay, you said you both took a sabbatical. Is she, like, is she full-time at the church? How does that Work, yeah. Yeah, she's full-time at the church and has been, not not our whole life by any means. First of all, we couldn't, uh, the church would hardly afford me when we started out. She was a nurse, and then she was busy raising our kids. But for the last, oh, I don't know, I'd say, I guess probably closer to 20 years, she's been full-time. And she, and I mean this sincerely, this is not false humility or something like that. She is the best pastor on our staff. Really? Hmm. I'm like fourth best pastor. I'm a good preacher, but I'm not that great a pastor. I'm okay. I'm adequate. I'm not bad at it. Mm. But Perry is the best. Mm. She's the, she will every Sunday. See, I'm telling the truth now. Yeah. We don't drive to church together. I come much earlier than she does, but I'm home like an hour before she gets home. I stay a good long while. I really do. I talk with people, pray with people. Then I've had enough, and I've got to come home. An hour later, Perry shows up because she's a pastor. Pastor. Hmm. Yeah. The nurse, the nurse, the caring for people. Yeah, doesn't, exactly right. Uh, yeah. I married a nurse. She's much better with people than I am. Okay. Uh, yeah. That happens. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so your, her book comes out a month before yours. Yours is going to be out middle of August. Hers came out the middle of July. Yeah, it was great planning, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, there's no, but there's no competition between y'all. You're, you're no, not going to like look at the Amazon scores and value no, yourself no. based on that? Good. I'm just saying that'd be a bad idea. Don't do it. Yeah. No. You're um okay, this book is great. There's a lot of things that we can talk about. Um I don't know where to where where to start. Let's You're talking about sinners in the hands of loving God because you've read yeah, that. Yeah, I, I didn't get a copy of your wife's book, but I have your, I've had yours for months and I finally just read it uh, yesterday and I'm glad I did. It's a great book. Good. Um let's start talking about the Bible. That's that's where you start, all right? Like it's the Bible. So it seems like that's a, a good place to begin. So you make the line in the book that um if you want, the, uh, the colors needed to paint God as a monster exist in the palette of the Bible. The palette of, like, yeah. you've got stuff in there, but um, God doesn't have to be a monster if you focus on Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of it. You can find about whatever kind of God you want in the Bible. Mm-hmm. If you want an angry, violent, retributive God, the Bible gives you the palette to paint that portrait. But is it true? Do you want? I know you can do that. I mean, take this verse here, this verse here, this verse here, this verse here, paint with those colors, and you end up with an angry, violent, retributive God, as portrayed in Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But is it true? Since we can make the Bible say so much, I don't know if this is news to people. Maybe this is shocking. But you can make the Bible say pretty much what you want it to say. 
you can make the Bible stand on its hind legs and dance and jig for you. I mean, what do you want to believe? I ask people, I say, what do you want to believe? Theologically, politically, culturally, just tell me what you want to believe. Uh, give me a list, five or six things. Give me 10 minutes and I will give you your Bible verses that will prove you're right. But you can do that with every side. You can do, you know, you want to be a communist? I'll give you the Bible verses. You want to be a capitalist? I'll give you the Bible verses. So where does that leave us? It leaves us, we have to have some way of centering the Bible. We have to have some way of reading the Bible as a whole text. And I don't think it's too daring a move to suggest it should be Jesus. That seems like a pretty obvious choice. Why? Well, it's, it's what it means to be a Christian as opposed to a biblicist. Okay, but it seems like that, of course, everyone should say, let's look at Jesus. But how come this is revolutionary for so many of us to say, no, we start at the center, Jesus is the center, everything else works out from that? Well, we've been schooled to approach the Bible with a flat reading. We're essentially, I mean, we don't really do this, but we want to at least pretend that the whole Bible carries the same weight and gravitas. And, and as long as we have a Bible verse, well, I've got a Bible verse. I mean, it, it can lead to the silliness. I mean, being this extreme, and most people wouldn't make this kind of move because it's too overt. But I remember preaching on the Sermon on the Mount and someone coming up to me, and a reasonably intelligent person, and saying, yeah, but the Bible says uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I said, I mean, Jesus specifically addresses that. He says, you have heard it said in the Torah, but I say to you. So, um, but see, if, if you want to be, if you don't want Jesus to be calling us to rethink our allegiance to violence, then the move you make is to go into the Old Testament generally, mm -hmm. and you find the wars of David, you find you know the conquest, you find these passages, and you say, well, there you have it. So clearly, Jesus can't really be seriously calling us to rethink everything pertaining to violence, because we can find a Bible verse that seems to indicate otherwise. Yep. But you can play that game with almost everything. You know, you can do that also with slavery if that's what you want. And it was done for centuries, yep. right? Do you think it's like there's just a flat reading of Scripture and this is how we've been taught and so this is how we read it? Or are we making the move that y you referenced the, uh, the Jewish rabbi who um, read the Sermon on the Mount and said, only God can ask me to do this, so I'm not going to yeah. do it. Do you think uh, it's like uh, we're... Just, yeah, do you, do you think we're just trying to step away from the audience? What's it say? Yeah. Neusner, Rabbi Jacob Neusner. Neusner, yeah, yes, Neusner. There he is, of course. Um, do you think we're trying to step away from like the weight of discipleship and we just jump around to get to text to soften it? Do you think that's what we're doing, or is it just... Yeah, I don't think, I think very few, if any, do it consciously. Mm -hmm. I think the cleverest way of all to hide from Jesus and the demands of discipleship is to hide from behind the Bible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know... Jesus is wanting to address us, and we put a Bible between us and Jesus. Yeah. See, Jesus saves everything that is to be saved, including the Bible. It's Jesus that saves the Bible from being just another violent religious text. Yeah. Now, one of the critiques of this sort of like Jesus-centric reading is that you're just playing the old uh, Marcionite game that goes back to the second century. And I actually, speaking of Twitter— a while back, there was a friend of the show, James K.A. Smith, who tweeted something about this sort of reading is just 
you know, being a Marcy and I. And I responded, and I don't think I really responded that well, but it was one of the few times I got in a little kerfuffle on the internet. And I, lo and behold, I saw that you were in the kerfuffle as well. I know Jamie. We've met in person and talked, and, and uh, we agree on what we agree, and I respect a lot of his work. Uh, I really despise the cheap shot from anyone that I am somehow Marcion in my reading of Scripture. Let me clarify. First of all, Marcion, second century heretic who taught that the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, was a demiurge, a kind of demon. Mm-hmm. And so his solution to the problem he sees in the Bible is to call the God of the Old Testament a demon and say, let's get rid of the Old Testament. I don't do anything like that. I call the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the Abba of Jesus. I read the Old Testament devotionally every day. I pray from it as a sacred text every day. So we can have the discussion about how we should deal with the Old Testament. I have some fairly strong opinions about that. But you can't take the cheap shot and say, oh, you're just a Marcionite, so you can – no, I'm, I'm just factually – I'm not. I mean, either you don't know me or you don't know Marcion. If you're going to equate us. Yeah. Right? Tweet that. <laughs> Tweet that. You don't know me or you don't know Marcion. I like that. So the um, – one of the things you say in the book is you uphold the uh, long-supported belief of the immu- immutability of God. You say, you know, it's a foundation. Right. God is not changing. I'm a theological conservative, Luke. I mean, I'm not, you know, wanting to rethink some of these major patristic positions. So, yeah, I hold to the immutability of God. But the understanding... God does not mutate. God, yes, God is not a mutant either. That's also true. Right. The church fathers didn't say that, but they would have if they knew the word. Um, God is not a mutant. God is not changing. But the understanding of God is being fully, better revealed clearly revealed in Jesus. And so you make this great observation about Jesus. Uh, I believe it's in Luke's gospel where he's reading from Isaiah 61. And there's a section where Israel is looking forward to judgment coming down upon their, their enemies. And Jesus reads the scroll, but he stops. And he doesn't read the last yeah. sentence. Why do you think that is? Well, there, there is, we don't even have to suppose. Let, let me set it up a little bit more because it's pretty clear. Uh, it's that passage in Isaiah 61 where, uh, you know, this, this is Isaiah the exile. Uh, the Jews are captives. They're brokenhearted. They're poor. And Isaiah envisions a day when the poor will have good news and the captives will be released and there'll be healing and all of that. And it'll be the year of the favor of our God and the day of the vengeance of our God. Jesus gets up in his hometown synagogue, first time he's preached there since beginning his public ministry, and he quotes that passage. He reads from it, actually, from the text that's handed to him, but he omits that last little line about vengeance, the year of the favor of our God. It it would be like singing the national anthem or the land of the free, and the singer sits down. Everybody's going, home of the brave? Come on, get Finish it? I mean, they know the text, and Jesus omits it. Now, somebody said, well, that's just the way Luke reproduced it or something like that. No, because what then happens is as Jesus begins to preach, he draws upon these two subversive stories in the Old Testament. First, where in the days of Elijah, it's a Gentile woman that is provided for, and Jesus makes it explicit. He says there are many widows in Israel But who gets the miracle? It's this Gentile. And then he makes 
Then he draws upon an even edgier story from the days of Elisha when you have Naaman, who was the general of the Syrian army that was the enemy of Israel, who's healed in Jesus, comes out and makes what is implicit tucked away in that subversive story in Second Kings. Jesus makes it explicit. He said, well, you know, there were lots of lepers, Jewish lepers in the days of Elisha, and it wasn't any of the Jews that got healed. It was a Gentile that got healed. And the reaction to that was to want to throw Jesus off a cliff. So Jesus is saying, I am fulfilling this scripture, but I'm editing this part about vengeance. And when you take people's religion of revenge away from them, they can become very hostile. And that's what happened in Jesus' hometown synagogue. Luckily, that doesn't happen today. If you try to take that, oh no! Uh, Just preach, preach peace, and everybody will love it. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you're saying, which I think your assessment's right, okay, Jesus is taking the best of that, and this is the clear picture of what a what what God intends, what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like. Is this? There's love for the enemy. There's forgiveness. Um, So you're jettisoning part of the sacred text of the Old Testament. To some, it might seem like. I leave it there. I'm not jettisoning it. Uh, Jesus is not saying we should. Jesus always speaks speaks respectfully of Scripture, but Jesus, as the Word made flesh, will challenge Scripture. Mm -hmm. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I say unto you. Back to, because we didn't finish the thought, what Rabbi Jacob Neusner says. He says, I admire Jesus But when I hear him talk like that in the Sermon on the Mount, I have to reject him because only God has the authority to demand of me what Jesus asks. To which a believer, a Christian believer would say precisely that Jesus is the word of God made flesh to which the Bible is trying to articulate. But the Bible is the word of God only in a secondary sense. It is not the word of God that was made flesh. God because he could not say everything he had to say in the form of a book, he says it in the form of a human life. Or another way of saying it, and I think this is really significant, the Bible doesn't stand above the story it tells, but is fully immersed in it. The Bible itself is on the journey to discover the true word of God. So anyone, I mean, a, you know, a, a child can read the Bible and see a movement yeah. there. There is some general – it doesn't mean that, that God becomes nice in the New Testament because there's all kinds of uh, violence passages that have to be dealt with in the New Testament as well. But in general, people can see a kind of movement. So we have to ask ourselves, though, what is happening? You know, what is the most obvious fact in the natural world? The most obvious fact is the sun rises in the east – Travels through the heavens, sets in the west, happens every day, and everybody sees it. Except that none of it's true. The sun is not the one in movement. We're the ones in motion. So if we see an apparent change of God over the long haul trajectory of Scripture, and we accept that God is immutable, then what's happening? Well, we ourselves, in the story, in the Bible, are are on the journey. The Old Testament which, you know, it's the Hebrew Scriptures, is it's the, it's the inspired telling of Israel's story of coming to know the living God. See, people need to get rid of this notion that the Old Testament is univocal. 
For example, if I if we gathered some of the heavyweights from the Old Testament, Moses, get Isaiah, get Jeremiah, get I don't know whoever you want to get, get Abraham, and you say, okay, guys, uh, I've called you here. I've got a question. Um, does the living God require ritual blood sacrifice? I'll be back in a half an hour, and you go have a cup of coffee, you come back, and the room's in a fist fight. I mean, because they're, they're, they don't arrive at the same conclusion. Very early on, indeed, you know, in the Torah and the priests, they're going to talk about the necessity. It's required. But eventually the psalmists and the prophets start challenging that. At one point in Psalm 40, uh, the psalmist dares to say, blood sacrifice and sin offering you have not required. What do you mean? I can show you the verses where it's required. Well, so you're, you're having this, these contested topics right there in the text. Jews, are, in, by the way, are fine with that. They acknowledge that. They're fine with that. Uh, it's Christians that seem to have a problem with the Bible not being univocal. That's fair. Some, I would assume, have heard this teaching, um, this view, and say, well, Brian, you just have a low view of the Bible. Oh, I have a high Christology. I have, I have a high view of Christ. Uh, I'm very serious about the scriptures. I, I, I read the scriptures devotionally every day. I study them every day. I just finished writing sermon 3,324, all who, that have scriptural texts. I think, I think it, no one can seriously say I don't treat the Bible with respect and it is, it is my sacred text that I work with within my faith. Um, but what I have is a high Christology. You know what? Uh, we're, we're, see, we're the products of a divorce. I'm talking about Protestants. It's not our fault. I mean, something had to happen. There had to be a reform, and there ended up being a split, and there was a divorce. And we ended up with, we'll say it this way, we ended up with Dad, and all Dad had was the Bible. And so we had to make the Bible be everything for us, but to be quite honest— the Bible can't live up to all that. We needed some more church and some more tradition to balance some things out, but we didn't have it, and we were afraid to. We were afraid that kind of language made us sound too Catholic, and so we didn't want to talk like that. And so we've tried to make the Bible be something it really can't be. You know, it's interesting to me that you know how many sermons you've written. That's pretty amazing. I know isn't that weird. That is so weird. But I just, I just, I don't know. That's how I kept track of. Them. I just. Numbered. Okay, that is that is kind of weird, uh, but kudos to but, but kudos for you. I mean, do your thing. Uh, okay, so you have me convinced in the Bible. Let's go, with Jesus. Jesus is the most important thing. My uh, my neighbor across the street, the rector at the uh, Episcopalian Church, uh, he would say that the Bible will not fail you because it points you to Jesus. I like that. Like it, we're we're all getting. To, I would say that's what the Bible does infallibly. If you want to talk about the infallibility of Scripture, it will infallibly point you to Jesus. I believe in the inerrant, infallible Word of God, and His name is Jesus. And Scripture, I don't mind calling the Word of God, as long as we understand what we're doing. I mean, that is used. But I would really prefer it if Christians, when I say the Word of God, the first thing that comes through their mind is Jesus. The, the, The Bible functions very similar uh, in relation to Jesus as John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, and some made the mistake of thinking John was the Messiah, right? But John says, no, 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 it's not me. It's not me. I'm pointing you to somewhere else. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light, etc. All that 
part there in John 1. Say it this way. There came a book sent from God whose name was the Bible. It was not the light, but it came to bear witness to the light that everyone might believe through it. See, the role of John the Baptist was that people might believe on Jesus through him. The role of the Bible is that we might believe in Jesus through the Bible. But we don't put our faith in the Bible. We put our faith in Jesus. And I know that sounds probably somewhat daring and radical to some, but don't you see that's that's what it is to mm-hmm. be a Christian? It's to believe what about in the Jesus. Critique that the only way we know about Jesus is through the Bible, and so it's it's a bit of a circular argument. If the way that we know who Jesus is is because of the Bible, then how can we change that? Uh, it's not the only way we know. It's the best way. It's the primary way, and we must always stay in conversation with Scripture. But see, because I'm an Orthodox Christian, I confess the Apostles' Creed. I, when I say orthodox, I mean, you know, small o. Um, I confess that Christ is risen and ascended and that the Holy Spirit has been sent. Jesus, I'm going to try to look this up. Jesus says, I, I won't bother with it, but I can quote it. Jesus says, uh, I have many things to say to you, but you're not, you're getting ready for them. You can't bear them yet. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will make them known to you. So, um, I mean, I, I, I accept the witness of Scripture. That's, that's, you know, and I live in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I live there. Um, but I won't say it's the only way we know Jesus. Isn't Jesus risen? Isn't he alive? Isn't the Holy Spirit sent? And I think we need to say that and because of this. This is just one analogy, but I think it's an important one, not an analogy, a, a point, an illustration, a truth. The Bible itself never gives a clear unequivocal condemnation of the institution of slavery. It just never does. Old or New Testament. I mean, New Testament. Slaves obey your masters. And we want to turn that into be a good employee, but that's not what it's saying. The Bible just lacks the capacity at that point in time, Old or New Testament, to have a vision of the abolition of the institution of slavery. Now, to the Bible's defense, Nearly always when the Bible's talking about slavery, it is trying to mitigate the suffering. It's trying to make it more humane. But to actually just say it should be abolished was not in the scope of the Bible. And yet there is a trajectory to be drawn from the Christ that we discover in the Bible that will lead us to say, hey, wait a minute. It's, it's not slaves obey your masters. It's let's do away with slavery. Masters repent of your participation in the institution of slavery. I don't think that's controversial today, although I have ran into p- plenty of biblicists who then want to end up wanting to defend it. And they say, well, you know, um, Roman slavery wasn't Something like bad. American yeah. chattel slavery. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, th- they had the good kind of slavery, right? I, you know? I've heard that argument. It just makes me want to, yeah. You're right. It, it's an upset. Well, see, that kind of thing biblicism will force you to do is to defend stupid things like that. Or if I ask somebody, um, is genocide always wrong? Is it always wrong to kill babies? The only modern person of any humane bent that hesitates are those that know their Bibles and go, well, wait a minute. If I say it's always wrong, then I've got a problem with the book of Joshua and other passages. You say in the book that violence in the Bible is so prevalent because that's the issue that the Bible is addressing. Yeah, I, I really believe that. I, um, you know, the way the the way the story is told is you have a a man named 
Adam, humankind, formed from the Adama, a human from the humus. You have a woman who's the mother of all, the mother of life, life itself, life giver. And they have two sons. A conflict arises between the one who's a farmer, harnessing agriculture, and the other one who is a nomadic uh, herdsman. There's a conflict that rises between them. Uh, Cain begins to practice forms of self-deception. He's warned about it by God, that sin is crouching at his door. But um, he lies to himself and he says, well, my brother's not really my brother. He's other. In fact, he's the enemy. In fact, we're in competition for the land. Uh, It's my manifest destiny. I have to do it. And he kills his brother, lies to God himself, to God and himself about it, moves east of Eden and founds the first city. Yes, that's the story the Bible tells. And what is the Bible saying there? It's saying our civilization itself is founded upon the practice of violent collective killing and then the lives we tell ourselves about it. We hide it mostly behind myths, monuments, memorials, flags, all that sort of stuff. But the Bible seeks to unveil that. But the Bible isn't doing it from uh, a lofty perch of, you know, this is just booming down from heaven, God's voice. But the Bible itself is part of that journey. And what the Bible does faithfully, though, is take us to Jesus. So, yeah, but if you're going to be a biblicist, then you do end up defending not only slavery, but you say, well, you know, if God told me to kill babies, I would do it. And I, and I don't say that. I say, no, I, yeah. no, no, I'm just okay. not going to do it. Let's talk about period. someone else being killed. Let's talk about Jesus. What is Jesus' death, mm-hmm. Jesus' violent death? Uh, you use the peculiar word of Jesus' death as a lynching. Were you channeling your inner James Cone with that, or what made you choose the word lynch? Actually, I wrote the book before I had read James Cone, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, but I have since read it. And I, yeah, I, I just, you know, it's, you see the action of the mob in the gospel narratives, you see how a mob mentality takes over. And Jesus, you know, and I'm, I mean, I'm deliberately being provocative, uh, but I want people to see it. Oh, it was that kind of death. It was like that. It, it's, it's, it is like the lynching of a black man in Jim Crow South. Uh, this is an innocent man who's falsely accused and if not the whole city, I don't mean that, but there was certainly a mob that was swept up in in accusation and all that, and, and so Jesus is murdered. Let me read you one line. Jesus' death needed to convince us to quit producing sacrificial victims, but was not needed to convince God to forgive. Uh, okay, so you're moving past penal substitutionary atonement, which the, the brief answer of that is that you know God is angry because we sin. God can't be around sin, so God gives the punishment that we deserve on Jesus, and so big brother Jesus saves us from angry dad. Instead, you're saying uh, something about Jesus' death uh, causing us to quit using the sacrificial victim idea altogether. How does that work? If you want to speak of Jesus as a sacrifice, you do so with this kind of language. Jesus was a sacrifice to stop sacrificing. But if you say no, Justice had to be said. There had to be blood. Well, you understand what you've just done. You've taken this idea of justice and made God beholden to it. 
as if God said, look, guys, I'd love to forgive you. I'm, I'm gracious. I'm forgiving. I'd love to forgive you, but I got to satisfy justice. And she's tough. And she's going to require that I bring some blood. So we're going to have to work out something here. And so then you end up with God implicated in, the, in what happens on Good Friday. Uh, so you say, okay, God says, I mean, are we going to say this? God says, yeah, yeah okay, I'm going to forgive sin, but I'm going to need some suffering. I need, I need blood. Uh, I want it to be torturous. I want, uh, I think crucifixion would do. Thorns, I need some yeah. thorns. How many thorns yeah. do we need? Do we, 17? Do, no, no, I want a whole crown. That's my favorite them. snark in the book. Is, that, that was snarky. But, but see, how does this division of labor work? Well, say it another way. Where do we find God on Good Friday? Do we find him in Caiaphas demanding a scapegoat? Do we find it? Do we find God in Pilate, who in the idea of satisfying imperial justice requires capital punishment? Oh, no. Where do we find God? We find God in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, which we have misunderstood as reconciling himself to the world. Jesus died for us, but he didn't die for God. Now, the Father, of course, knows. The Father knows that the Son coming into our system is going to be killed, but even Plato knew that. Yeah, that was a cr- Plato in the Republic says, if an innocent one came among us, we would scourge him, crucify him. And that was four, 400 years so, before Jesus. So yeah, the right. reason people think that the quote-unquote justice of God needed to be satisfied is because God has God's wrath, right? Like the, the song that I'm assuming you probably don't sing at your church, the In Christ Alone, where it, there's a line about, the, and the wrath of God I know. was satisfied. Um, I, was just, I was just in Belfast uh, a few weeks ago preaching in a Presbyterian church that they invited me, wanted me to preach. And right before the service, the pastor came up to me, to me and said, oh, man, I'm sorry, but, you know, they're gonna, we're going to sing Christ alone today. And, and uh, I don't pick the hymns, but I know how you feel about that. So I thought, I mean, my, my reputation had preceded me. I've heard Tom Wright <laughs> say that he just subs the word love instead of wrath right there. And so that's what I do for myself. But you have a different take on the wrath of God, which actually you quote – Brad Jersak in an email. Side note, do you think you'll ever quote a message I send you, like a direct message on Twitter in a book in the future? Good. It could happen. It okay, could there's happen. lofty expectations that I now have for you. Um, so de- describe how you understand what the wrath of God means. If it's not, I need to punish Jesus so I get this out of me. Yeah. The wrath of God is a metaphor. Uh, the, ch- the church fathers talked like this. I mean, the Bible talks about God being asleep and having to be awakened, but that's a metaphor. Uh, if God is actually becoming angry, like he's, 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 he's content, he's, he's placid, and all of a sudden he becomes angry, well, he's no longer immutable. And, and this, the, the impassibility of God was a big deal with the church fathers, and it's why they didn't want to view God as actually becoming angry. Did you find angry. impassibility? Uh, unchangeable, unmoved, un- yep. that, that God is not actually either joyful or angry and his mood is changing. God is not God, subject God's to mood change. God's not the capricious gods that they find in Greek mythology. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, the church fathers saw that as a pagan view of God, so that's why they resisted it so strongly. Um, the wrath of God, though, is divine consent to our own self-destructive will. 
If you want to call that phenomenon the wrath of God, you may because the Bible does. But if you want to look at it more theologically and more deeply, you say, okay, well, this is a metaphor for the natural consequences. If I move against the grain of love, and this is, and the God of love is the creator, and if I move against the grain of the universe that is love, I am going to suffer the shards of self-inflicted pain and sorrow. I can call this the wrath of God if I like, but... Um, there's a there's a passage. I'm gonna I'm gonna grab a. He's grabbing uh, a Bible right now. I'm gonna fill the air while he's yeah. opening his Bible and turning okay. the page. In Psalm Step, there's a good picture of this. You know the, the Psalms. They're artists and they're working with language. And so, yeah, <laughs> I'm preaching on the Psalms right now. In Psalm seven, um, the psalmist says, "God is a righteous judge." God sits in judgment every day. If they will not repent, God will wet his sword. He will bend his bow and make it ready. He has prepared his weapons of death. He makes his arrows shafts of fire. Well, you know, somebody says, there it is. You know, God is actively participating in retributive justice and punishment even violent but just keep reading if we just okay just don't stop there go on look at those who are in labor with wickedness who conceive evil and give birth to a lie they dig a pit and make it deep and fall into the hole that they have made their malice turns back upon their own head their violence falls on their own scalp so the first part has this metaphor of God bending a bow and making arrows and all that, but then it shifts, and the psalmist speaks of the wicked digging a, uh, a pit that they fall into, and then he comes out and is very explicit with it and just says their own violence is what boomerangs back on them. Now, you can call that the wrath of God if you like, but it's not, it's not punitive or retributive. It's consequential. One of the things about penal substitutionary atonement is it is such a good pitch. It, it, it's a great altar call. It's it's, well, it's good cop, bad cop well, it, is what but it, it is. I'm just saying it has a good marketability, and it sells really well. And to say... And you can write good hymns based yeah, on it. you can write hymns on it. it. It's almost a mathematical equation that we can buy into. The fact of Jesus as overcompany, overcoming powers and principalities... It's harder to have the, the visceral emotional connection to it. How do you think? How do you work around yeah. that as a pastor? Well, I think I work toward beauty. I work toward seeing the beauty of Christ in the cross. See, there's both human ugliness and divine beauty at the cross. Um, I think part of what's going on with penal substitutionary atonement theory is that it allows us to not bring a full critique of our own systems of violence. If Jesus was murdered because we have built our system so that it is capable of the greatest sin imaginable, that is deicide, the murder of God, then we might really need to rethink the whole basis of human civilization as an axis of power enforced by violence. 
But if we say, well, no, God had to use violence himself in order to forgive us, then violence slides in under the bar and it's okay and it makes it. Um, I think we're unwilling to stand our civilization in the searing light of the truth of Good Friday. Uh, Paul talks about it. He says this is where the principalities and powers are stripped naked. And, of course, you know, uh, crucifixion victims were put to the shame of being crucified naked. But Paul says, no, 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 no. It's not Christ who's shamed. It's not Christ who's stripped naked through the cross. It's the principalities and powers. We see that their claim to be just and wise was always a lie. It was always a facade. It was always a justification for them maintaining their power. And the cross exposes them as nothing more than having a naked lust for power. But I I think what we want is we want a ticket to heaven and not a full critique of human civilization. So I think that penal substitution is a way of really reducing the the effect of the cross. It it places the emphasis certainly on on a kind of personal guilt before God, but whole systems of sin. Systemic sin goes largely unaddressed. Through that system. Why do you think the apostles in the book of Acts never mentioned an appeal to the afterlife in any of their evangelistic sermons? Well, because it isn't how they understood the gospel. For them, the gospel, see, all of these terms, gospel was a White House press release. <laughs> I mean, it's a royal announcement yeah. coming from the emperor. And terms like Son of God, Prince of Peace, Savior of the World, um, what are some others? Um, I can't think of them right now. These were all imperial titles given by the Roman Senate to various emperors and then circulated in the means of, in the means of mass communication they had on coins. So before Jesus is called Prince of Peace or Son of God or Savior of the World or Lord, this is what emperors were called. The early Christians make this very daring and subversive move to say, you know, what we've been saying about the emperor really belongs to this crucified and risen Jew, Jesus of Nazareth. And their gospel in maybe the shortest summary is Jesus is Lord. In other words, there is a new kingdom with a new emperor, and we should live our lives under his reign. Now, no doubt they, no doubt the apostles assumed that there were certain afterlife ramifications to this, but it was never the focus of their gospel. Um, It becomes the focus of our gospel because, again, then we don't have to rethink the principalities and powers. Jesus becomes the secretary of afterlife affairs instead of actually being Lord. That's a good line right there. (laughs) You've used that one before, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's good. That's good. Okay. uh, So you make the comment that you're not sure... Uh, Rabbi Abraham Heschel is in hell. And I don't know if you know this, but when you say stuff like that, you get farewelled on Twitter. So when this book comes out, what are the chances that someone says farewell BZ? Uh, from, the, from the hyper-reformed crowd, yeah. They're not going to even get past the title because they're going to see that I'm kind of oh, yeah. taking on Jonathan Edwards a little bit. But remember, I do so as one who was a huge fan of Edwards. I mean, I tell that story in the very beginning of the book that I had, I I put together my own copy out of a larger work of Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. 
and this is way back. This is in the '80s, the early '80s, when cut and paste was done with scissors and glue. <laughs> oh wow! And I had this little booklet, and I made a handmade cover. And mm-hmm. you know, if I had one here, I'd show it to you. But it's at this, it's at my study. But um, I memorized parts of it, and I added it to my arsenal, my evangelism by terrorism, because <laughs> I wanted to have the you know I wanted to be like Edwards. Um, so so I come as a guy that had been influenced by this. And, and the, the, the whole tone of the book is not the take on Edwards. I mean, that's just a little device at the beginning of the yeah. book. And, and, it's, and I don't, I don't – I'm very clear that Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is not reflective of all that Jonathan Edwards had to say. You make that clear. But the, the truth yeah. is it is the most important sermon in the history of the American religious imagination. It really did shape how we think about God. And I think we need to get away from that. But you asked another question, and I, what were you asking me? You were dancing, because I was trying to bring up, you said that Abraham Heschel, you're not sure he's in hell. Oh, no, I'm, I'm hey, willing to go dance. If you want to dance, it's fine. I'm Church of Christ, I, I won't dance, I'll just watch you do. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think you have to read. Abraham Joshua Heschel, Jewish rabbi, is he in hell? Well, as I tell the story in the book, what would be the point of that? I was sitting at my father's bedside as he was dying. I mean, not necessarily in that moment, but over a period of months. And I was visiting him a lot, and he couldn't really communicate. So, you know, I would talk to him, and that would be that. And I would would just sit and read. And I was at the hospital because he had fallen and broken his arm. and, And my father was a very wise, kind man, highly respected, a judge. And he was often being confused for a rabbi, a particular rabbi in our city, because he does kind of look Jewish. And um, I was reading Heschel, sitting by the bedside of my dying father, reading Abraham Joshua Heschel's The Prophets, which is just a wonderful book. It's late at night, and I'm now leaving the hospital, and it's quiet, and I have a pensive mood. I get on the elevator all by myself. It's dark, quiet. And this thought just went through my mind. Is Abraham Joshua Heschel in hell? And I, I, I said out loud, well, what would be the point of that? <laughs> that just seems absurd. Uh, the idea that a post-mortem eternal torture chamber is what is to be understood as hell when we read our Bible, is is mistaken. Hell has picked up a lot of meanings over the last 2,000 years that we tend to read back into the text. Mm -hmm. Jesus never says anything that would suggest, if you want to talk about a post-mortem hell, Jesus talks about the wicked, the wicked, as would be understood by, you know, the man on the street, the wicked. But it's not about those who don't believe. Well, it's there's nothing about all non-Jews or all non-Christians, you know, go to hell. I mean, Jesus doesn't talk like that. I mean, the, the most of the time that Jesus is talking about Gehenna, he's talking about the impending doom that Jerusalem is about to incur because of their hell-bent ways of rebellion through violence against Rome that Jesus is trying to save them from. But there are times when Jesus clearly is making some allusion to some afterlife stuff. The two most clear, the two clearest ones would be the Lazarus parable and the parable of the sheep and the goats. But nowhere in those parables do you get the idea that the sheep or uh, Lazarus are in heaven because they prayed a sinner's prayer. And for all we know, the rich man in that parable 
he may have had impeccable theology. The problem wasn't what he believed. The problem was how he lived and his lack of concern for Lazarus. So we've, we've, we've cobbled together this system that says all non-Christians go to hell. But that is not what the scriptures teach. So I, I, just, want to, I just want to cut to this because some people will wonder. People, am I a universalist? I am not a universalist because I think that claims to know too much. I will say I'm a universalist sympathizer. <laughs> and, and universalism is not a heresy. It is a minority position that has always been held throughout the history of the church. Minority, but it's always been held by no less than Gregory of Nyssa, who presided over the Council of Nicaea, who basically defines orthodoxy. So if you're going to throw the universalists under the heresy bus, then you might as well throw the Nicene Creed along with it, because the guy that presided over that was a universalist. So I'm not a universalist. God may be. <laughs> I kind of hope he is. Uh, but I'm not going to claim to know that much. Yeah. All right. That's a good answer. But but, but neither do. But see, I'm, I'm not going to be put in a position where I have to say, oh, yeah, all those Jews that went to Hitler's ovens, oh, that was just getting started. Then they went into God's eternal torture chamber. So anyway, I, I do a much better job of this in the book. Yeah, you, my, my, you know, that I actually think the hell chapter, if you read it, I, I don't think it's going to cause me too much trouble other than among real hardcore fundamentals. But let's be honest, they don't like you anyway. So you're, you're good. Nah, this, you, okay, you, you really did a great job with the book. Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Uh, the title's great. I mean, I, I see what you did there. It's well played. The book itself, outstanding. I highly recommend people get a copy of this. I know you've got a lot coming up. You've got your 3,324th sermon. And then you've got trips to our friends down at the Spark Conference down under. And... In May, you're making a trip out to join the Church of Christ, brethren, in I Malibu. At, at beautiful Pepperdine University. Yeah. That's a, a beautiful yeah, place. Pretty exciting. And I, uh, Mike told me that you're going to do some like prayer school stuff one morning. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you don't know. I, I love doing that. You don't that. Know, have any idea. But I got a text from Mike nah. saying you are. <laughs> but very excited for you to come on over to the Church of Christ side. We'll have you singing a cappella uh, songs by the end of the week. And uh, anyway. Uh, the, okay. I'll leave my Stratocaster at yeah, home. Don't, don't, and, and leave all your rock re- references. We don't want those. Uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Great book. Well done. Thanks, BZ. Thank you. All right, friends, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Don't forget to check out our sponsor, Podbean, for all your podcast hosting or publishing needs. Podbean is the company that will take good care of you, like they've taken good care of me. And don't forget their mobile app to get you hosting a podcast directly from your phone. All the guesswork is taken out. Super easy. Go check them out. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We'll see you back here next time.